At a policy level, there were efforts made to encourage hospitals and health systems to measure quality, but there weren't a lot of efforts made to have them measure it accurately. And so if all they needed to do was measure quality, and it was called in those days pay for reporting, then it didn't really matter how good the system was. We were building a system that would be way more accurate than anything else. But it didn't matter, but, but the industry at that point didn't care how good they were at measuring quality. And now, from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. COVID brought medicine and politics together on a national stage and left many Americans wondering, how are healthcare decisions actually made in Washington? As an MD, inventor, and veteran congressional speaker, our guest today, Dan Riskin, has the unique insight into both politics and healthcare to answer this question. His congressional testimony in the 21st Century Cures Initiative in 2014 helped define the 21st Century Cures Act passed in 2015. And his companies and products influence the care of millions of patients annually. Dan is currently the CEO and founder of Verantos, as well as the adjunct professor of surgery and biomedical informatics research at Stanford. Today, Dan and I discuss health tech career strategies, the power of authentic leadership, and just how the sausage gets made. Here's our conversation. Welcome, Dan. Thanks for joining me this morning. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Christine. Yeah, so I've been really excited uh, to uh, have you on our podcast and to have your story be shared with our listener. You have a really interesting background. Um, maybe it would be helpful for our listeners to kind of uh, hear your journey, uh, how you transition from one area to another, yet still in the realm of healthcare in a way. Sure, sure. I started my career in technology. In fact, I uh, paid for medical school by selling software online um, and thought that I would be a traditional doctor. I went through the traditional pathway, four years of medical school, nine years of residency and fellowship um, to become a surgeon and critical care doctor. And I was very proud of that. But along the way, that technology bent kept coming out, and I kept seeing problems that I wanted to solve and building technology um, and being excited by how I could make my industry better with technology. And so by the time I was done with all my training, I found that I had um, gotten a first product FDA approved. I had um, taken my research years to do business and bioinformatics at MIT and had shaped this career around not just practicing clinical medicine, but also building products that I thought could make patients' lives better. So that's interesting that you have that technology angle because oftentimes um, 
at least the people I know, when they start, uh, they go to medical school, oftentimes they have a science major, but not computer science major. And you mentioned you pay your medical school by selling software. I wonder what kind of software that is. Ah. I had been writing software since I was a kid. I was I, I'm um, I was lucky in that my parents uh, got me a computer. They got me the first Apple II um, back in 1979, before there was even even an Apple II Plus. And I loved it. I programmed it, and I taught myself as best I could as a young child. Um, at that point, um, I was programming before I was even 10 years old. Um, and, uh, as I went through elementary school and went into computer competitions in those days, it was a really exciting environment for individual contributor, individual contributors to learn to write software and, um, and make a difference. Uh, the industry has evolved a lot over the last few decades. Um, individual contributors are a lot less uh, common now than they were then. But in those days, I could write software and do something useful um, and actually make a difference. And uh, whether it was working for law practices, as I did in my early days, or writing healthcare software or call scheduling software, you know, I was able to actually um, feel I was making a difference in the 80s and 90s in the early days of software. So I assume you were selling multiple kind of software to pay for your medical school. <laughs> I did. And I wish I could say it paid for all of it, but at least it paid for a part of it. And uh, it was it was fun. It was a personal passion. I was one of those geeks that would stay up late at night writing software and love it at least as much as what I was learning during the day in my medical curriculum. So what do you learn from that experience and how is that different from being in a medical student and being a doctor? I, I often think about the different parts of my career I've had and, and later after finishing my training, I've layered in business and policy but even just those two areas, the healthcare and technology are such different cultures. Um, healthcare is so focused on the patient and so focused on clinical issues and so open to um, knowing what we know and then filling in the rest with guesses. Mm -hmm. um, that's not how engineering works. Um, and so, the healthcare industry with doctors who think a very specific way um, sometimes clashes a little with the technology industry. And we see that come out in the types of healthcare technology that are available and those that aren't available. But you're saying, it's interesting what you're saying, that being a doctor, you, have, you cannot have every information in your hand that you are willing to be flexible to fill the gap. And it, at least from what I, my understanding with the technology is that you break it, you, you make it and you break it, you keep, you know, you keep breaking it to get it right. But along the way, you know, before, you know, it's perfect, they release it in a market. And being in a healthcare, you always have to be careful about that because you cannot try something that's not 
quite right in trying a patient. How do you, you know, it seems there's that disconnect there. And, and in healthcare, there's a real um, expectation that we will know what we know, meaning stay up to date on literature and know what we don't know and do our best to make guesses. But there's also an understanding that healthcare is not all algorithms. Um, the experience of the patient is often at least as influenced by the human connection, um, the bedside manner, as the algorithms. And so healthcare is built up in such a way that it does not focus on a mechanical robotic approach to care, or at least the best healthcare does not. Uh, when I teach, and I still teach now and then um, uh, out of Stanford affiliates, I teach the um, I teach the students and residents that healthcare is transforming. We it's no longer appropriate to give care only as a human, and it was never appropriate to give care only as a machine. At this point, the practice of healthcare is by cyborgs. We are all integrating the human nature of it with machine support. Oftentimes, my residents will see a patient and then go straight to UpToDate to look up and learn what the most recent literature is on condition. It's appropriate to do that. It's inappropriate to pretend that we can keep everything in our human brains. Mm -hmm. um, so we are all practicing as a combination of man augmented with machine, but we should never pretend that we're just machine. Yeah. Do you think eventually the machine will get smarter and smarter that the human side, I mean, I like, I hate to think that the human side will be less and less. I mean, how do you navigate that so that the cyborg becomes smarter? Ah, the machine will certainly get smarter and smarter as it should. The machine will go from saying, here's the literature on a condition all the way out to saying, based on looking at routinely collected data, I know that this unique patient can be best treated with this drug because that's what worked for other patients who had common characteristics. The machine will get smarter and smarter as it should. Um, that won't change the need for the human part of healthcare. Um, I, um, I continue to practice and I have a broad spectrum from surgery to um, critical care. And on the critical care side, I will often have end-of-life discussions. And it's important to do that well. That shouldn't be done by a machine. It's absolutely fine to look on a website and use an algorithm and say, here are my symptoms and learn I should or should not go in to be seen. That's fine. But you're not going to go on a website and say, I have a dying relative and now I need to process what's happening and make certain decisions and think through this in a way that's appropriate for me as a person and my culture. Um, that shouldn't be an algorithm or chatbot. Do you think, you know, like, you know, many years ago, we did not think that machine would do certain things and now they do. But do you think eventually even the end of life discussion is something that the machine can learn. I think it's entirely possible that some people will prefer to work with the machine. For example, when I want to purchase an item, um, I prefer to go online and use Amazon. Um, I like to use machines for certain things. 
And maybe I like to use machines for more things than someone else does. Mm -hmm. And so there will be a spectrum of people who want to get the majority of their healthcare from machines. And I think that's all well and good. There will also be a spectrum of people who like the personal connection more. And for any given condition, it may be that 80% of people will want to get care for a cold from a machine or through a telemedicine visit. But maybe 80% of people will prefer to have a discussion and caring for a sick or dying family member with a person. And I think that those spectrums of individual variety and a variety by condition will continue. I think I'm just thinking about, you know, as you were saying this, I was thinking about how when there's a lot of decision that is going to be making so much impact in your life, oftentimes you want a sounding board, not so much about that person making the decision for you, but to hear you out loud. I think that kind of human process. So maybe that's kind of made me think that maybe more people are interested in having the human part of that interaction on that kind of decision-making. As a... Um so on the clinical side of things, and, and you know, we, we can talk during this interview about kind of the future course and the technology and the business and policy, but on the clinical side of things, um, I've had this, this, this dichotomy between being a surgeon and being a palliative care doctor. I'm, I'm board certified as a critical care doctor and a palliative care doctor, as well as being a surgeon, a board certified surgeon. And on the surgery side of things, there isn't usually a lot of room for um, making it up and people don't care as much about the human side. They want you to get it right. They want the operation to go well. They want to have a good outcome and that's appropriate. On the palliative side of things, they wanna have a real discussion. There are no right answers. And there's been interesting literature in palliative to say, if you had a choice, between you making the decision for your loved one versus the doctor making the decision for the loved one, what would you prefer? And there's a very interesting bell curve where a small number of people want to make the decision exclusively themselves. And a small number of people want to make the decision exclusively by the doctor. This is like an end of life decision for a family member. And the large majority wants some contribution of both, whether it's a little more them, a little more the doctor or even. And that can only happen in discussion and bonding and meaningful human connection. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group, Canon Quality Group has been helping medtech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. It's interesting you're saying that, that, you know, how different it is in surgery, how different it is in palliative care, which I think bring me to my uh, next question is that you're a surgeon, you're palliative care, and then you're also businessmen, and you mentioned about you're, you know, interested in doing a lot of stuff in policy in order for you to advance a lot of the things that you think will be 
uh, important in improving healthcare. Um, can you tell us about how different that is? Because you kind of sit in one person there. <laughs> It is so different. And I am such a big believer in specialization. And it's a funny thing that my career has forced me to learn the fields of healthcare, technology, policy, and business to achieve the things I cared about, which is building products that actually get used. Mm -hmm. And as I was completing my training, um, uh, and this is now in the early to mid 2000s. Um, I was looking at what was going to be needed to actually get things used. And there were so many challenges in healthcare. Um, we had limited healthcare data. EHR adoption at that point was 16%. There was very little data in the system. Um, we had limited use of the data. We had minimal policies that supported people to get the data in there or to use it to improve healthcare. Um, and I found myself in this situation as a um, young doctor on, um, on consulting faculty at Stanford, building products, working in a venture firm, saying, how do I tackle this huge problem? And I got lucky in some ways. I was invited to join uh, in 2007 the um, Health Advisory Committee for the campaign of a junior senator, um, Barack Obama. And it was such a phenomenal experience to be part of that advisory committee and to think through the policies we could make to get health data into the system, to reform payment. And here I am, a young faculty in Silicon Valley, part of a venture firm, thinking about the next product and next company I can build, but actually having a hand in shaping national policy. And it was such a tremendous opportunity. I think only luck could have gotten me there, um, but it was, it was phenomenal. So what do you learn from that? You know, you mentioned being... Uh, part of the policy discussion and shaping the policy and how is that different from what you expected what versus what reality is? Um, I was a young surgeon who was very used to everything working perfectly. Um, I was used to everyone knowing their role and every step being orchestrated. Um, and I love that. That was a great feeling that it was so precise and was done in such a high quality way. And then I was invited to go to DC into this messy, messy world of everyone having different opinions and trying to figure out policy that made sense amongst the different opinions and trying to handle the politics because everyone needs to get reelected. And they need to do their fundraising, and they can't do that if they are going against the politics of their constituents. Um, and thinking through that to the point where I could be supportive of what ultimately became a huge effort in health payment reform and health data reform, it was a phenomenal experience. Um, but I was not ready for the messiness. It took me years to get comfortable in a culture of politics and policy 
to actually be able to collaborate with a large group and move the ball forward. So how do you do that? I mean, it took you years, but now that you've done it, can you tell us what are the tips and advice that you can uh, help us if we need to be in that position? <laughs> if we're uh, <laughs> well, the idea that it's one person is never correct. It's, it's its own machine like surgery is. The machine is a combination of members and senators and healthcare legislative aides and assistants and um, lots of people working um, to actually get things done. Um, in, in addition to an administration that has large staff that are trying to be supportive or active, um, the idea that you need to get to know a lot of people and listen and understand what they want and need and be able to collaborate with them and help them. In the end, for me, it led to working with a group of people that were trying to get laws passed and to share as an expert in health data, which by that point I was, what were some of the bigger needs? Um, I'm not an expert in health payment reform. We had other people around who were still good at that. But I am an expert in health data reform. And by 2010 or so, I had a pretty good vision of what a couple of decades of health data reform would look like. And that was fun to be able to share the vision and get it put into laws and then ultimately build companies that could actually start to implement it. That was really fun. So, which is a good segue probably to talk about the company that you started. The, um, the vision uh, starting in 2009-2010 was a first decade of health data reform from 2010-2020 that would get information into the system. Um, at that point, EHR adoption, 16%. There was limited compute power because the cloud was nascent. There was limited technology to process it because AI was only really starting to get used. And the vision was in the first decade, we could get data into the system and that we would be able to start using it to implement existing standard of care. Meaning if we knew that heart failure patients did better with a diuretic or another type of treatment, can we actually figure out a way to identify those heart failure patients and make sure they're getting it? So whether it's called population health or disease management or clinical decision support, ways to use information in the system to actually implement the existing standard of care, which at that point was so inconsistently practiced. That was the first decade of health data reform. The second date of health data reform was intended to be a lot more exciting, which is 2020 to 2030. And that was intended to be using the data and all the new available technologies, the compute power, the AI, using the information to actually change the standard of care, to move beyond the paradigm that just says, let's figure out what's safe and effective, and to move into precision medicine to say, for this subgroup, this treatment is better than that treatment based on routinely collected data. That was the second decade of health data reform. And to answer your question, um, 
that first decade, 2010 to 20 to 2020, I started a company that focused on using the data to help implement existing standard of care, to help enable value-based healthcare, to understand quality and risk. Um, it was exciting. That was the early days of this work, early days of data in the cloud and healthcare. Um, and that was where I focused in starting in 2010. And so can um, can you tell us a bit more about the company and sort of technology and where it's at and how the impact that you want to make with this particular technology? Sure. I called the company Health Fidelity. The idea was... Um, it had two meetings. One, Fidelity was referencing the, um, the accuracy of the information. And second, it was saying that I was faithful to healthcare. It's trying to enable value-based healthcare to measure quality and risk, to enable all the value-based contracting and alignment of incentives that I knew would be needed to help the next generation of healthcare. In that company, I raised um, a little under $50 million. We grew it quickly. Um, and our first customer published uh, within a couple of years um, that we had actually um, helped them to grow uh, $200 million in revenue. The company grew so fast. Um, it achieved some of what I was hoping to achieve and didn't achieve other parts just like the policy work I did. <laughs> it's, I think the work never ends. It's hard. And uh, Health Fidelity, I was so proud of. And it's a growing company and a successful company. Um, in those days, there was limited desire to measure quality. And that was something I hadn't expected going in. That's interesting why people don't. Are, we're not interested in measuring quality at that time. Is there a reason? Do you, understand, do you know why? At a policy level, there were efforts made to encourage hospitals and health systems to measure quality, but there weren't a lot of efforts made to have them measure it accurately. And so if all they needed to do was measure quality, and it was called in those days pay for reporting, mm -hmm then it didn't really matter how good the system was. We were building a system that would be way more accurate than anything else. But it didn't matter. But, but the industry at that point didn't care how good they were at measuring quality. Now, the industry may have moved along a bit since then, but I don't think the policy ever required that that be super accurate. Do you think, I'm sure the policymaker wants that measurement to be accurate. And just listening to what you said earlier about the, you know, there's so many conflicting constituency uh, interests. Uh, do you think that has a role in that? That the policy has not kept up with demanding the accuracy of the quality measurement? I think that Congress correctly believes that its role is to take is to create incentives up to a certain point. And from there, industry needs to take over and create the incentives. And whether Congress should have required accuracy or not, uh, we can debate. In the end, indeed, industry created the incentives. So fast forward a number of years to the second part of the decade, um, 2016 to 2020, 
And by that point, the value-based contracts were in place. Most health systems had at least some value-based contracts. And then they started having incentive to actually care about whether they were measuring their quality outcomes correctly and whether their outcomes were meaningful. These intermediate markers, the process measures, the other measures of quality, the health systems increasingly said what's meaningful and what can actually help us to deliver better, more efficient care. So at that point, the private industry um, took over. And so in some ways, you can say it didn't matter if the federal government required accuracy because private industry took over and eventually required it. Although I have to say in the first part of the decade, it was disappointing for me that industry was not focused there. Industry was focused on risk and can we get into contracts and can we be safe in our contracts and can we not lose money and can that enable these value-based contracts to happen. And so I accomplished a little of what I wanted. I really cared about value-based care to happen and value-based contracting to happen. And the company that I had founded and run for so many years Um, up through 2014, was doing just that. Um, But it didn't accomplish everything I wanted to, probably because the timing wasn't right. Um, Private industry had not picked up a strong desire to get accurate measurement of quality and certain other things that would be needed. So now with that, what is the stage, what is the next steps that you are thinking about to accomplish, to make sure that you get what you you want to accomplish? So in 2014, I was excited. I got invited to testify before Congress on an initiative called 21st Century Cures. Um, That later became a law. And within that law, we started talking about that second decade of health data reform. Um, It was intended to say, what is the future of healthcare? And we included language around precision medicine and thinking about how we can use routinely collected data to improve the health system. Every other industry was using the data that's routinely collected to make things better. You get into a car and you drive and you put on Google Maps that's using data to make it better for you, to help you know where to drive and what the traffic is like. Every industry was doing this, but healthcare was a laggard. We were so proud of getting data into the system of the EHR adoption, which exceeded 90% after a few years, but it wasn't being used. Whether it was interoperability challenges or lack of incentives or fear of privacy and security, for whatever reasons, the information wasn't being used to make care better for the daily lives of patients. And that was wrong. And so I testified on the initiative. I worked in congressional retreat. And we thought deeply about what could be achieved in this kind of law and how far we could push the ball forward. And one of the items that came out in the law was called real-world evidence. It's the idea that we use real-world data or routinely collected data to create evidence to make care better. So that movement to change the standard of care. And included in the law was a requirement for FDA to use real-world evidence. And the thought was that payers and doctors would follow. 
to actually want to see this evidence to figure out what treatments work better or worse in subgroups of patients. Something we've never had before. Subgroup analysis and comparative effectiveness has had very limited implementation, and we wanted to make it happen a lot. So that was so exciting in 2014. The law was passed in December 2016. And in 2015, as I was working on this and had decent visibility, I started my next company called Verontos. Mm -hmm. um, and that company, um, which was named Verontos, errant is the quest, Vera is the truth. It was a quest to understand what is real in healthcare. What is the right treatment? Um, and to use data to do so. And the idea was that we would do very high validity work. My fear at that time was the traditional approaches to real world evidence never tested accuracy. They had a history of giving the wrong answer many times. Um, we look at hormone replacement or recent efforts in COVID where Lancet and New England Journal needed to retract articles. And there's so many examples of giving the wrong answer. And we wanted to be the group that would give the right answer, that would figure out the accuracy and validity challenge and do this in a really good way. That was a hard problem. I'm glad I didn't choose that as my first company. I never would have succeeded. <laughs> so, um, so the company's been around now for six years. Um, what have you accomplished from the goal of Verandos? And uh -huh. what are the gaps that you still wish that you want to get to? So we spent our first few years just trying to figure out the technology. Through 2018, we, um, I funded it. I had done well on my previous company and, um, and built this company up, paying payroll every month to try to think through with great engineers and talented clinical informaticists and others what would be a good infrastructure to enable real-world evidence. Um, and what we found was the legacy infrastructure, which used claims data to run studies, claims data often having accuracy less than 50%, was not going to be sufficient to make clinical assertions to change the standard of care. That was the biggest learning. We had a suspicion coming out of health fidelity that that was going to be the case. We had seen in the payer provider world in health fidelity that low quality data gave the wrong answer and led to huge problems. But we had never tried to ask that question in pharma and in the change of clinical practice is what kind of data do you need? And we found that we needed the full patient record. We needed the narrative and the problem list and the claims and the registries. We needed everything to get real information. We needed to put it together using very good technology. The technology only became good enough by 2017, 2018. We were applying advanced AI technologies and large compute power across the cloud. And um, we went out to pilot it in 2018. And uh, boy, did our customers teach us a lot. <laughs> the real world evidence. <laughs> oh, my God. The years of being an entrepreneur has taught humility the same way that my early days as an attending surgeon taught me humility. 
it's funny, you come out, you're a chief resident in surgery, you think you know everything. And then the next year you're a junior attending and you realize you know nothing. <laughs> and uh, th this company was the same experience, which is, oh my God, it's so hard. And to do good work and to be honest about it and to continue to have people fund you and believe in you and be your customer and um, support you, it requires humility and authenticity, which young entrepreneurs have a hard time achieving. Um, everyone thinks they need to go out to raise money with a hockey stick and saying they know everything. Mm -hmm. And at least in my opinion, the opposite is true. I think be truthful and be authentic, like you're saying. I think uh, it's very refreshing uh, for investors to see, but oftentimes it's hard when investors don't have the time. They just quickly brush through certain things that, well, you know, this would not have the growth that I'm looking for. Therefore, I'm just going to have a pass. And how do you get that attention to make the investor understand the problem and the reality? It's timely. You know, the Elizabeth Holmes trial, the Theranos trial, really highlights the point, which is, yes, you can bluster and put out smoke and hope to bake it till you make it. Mm -hmm. But that's not good in healthcare. Right. Um, I'm not going to speak to other industries, but I know that's not good in healthcare, not good for patients. And I remember in my early days um, when I had just finished training and I was in a venture firm, my boss told me, so I was out to raise money for the company I was about to start. And I said, God, this is hard. And I, she said, well, Dan, you're going to need Gravitas. And I said, great. How do I learn this Gravitas thing? I'm a very smart guy. I know how to learn. Teach me. <laughs> and she's like, yeah, that's not going to happen. Um, I think that, that there are certain things that can only be learned by doing. And when I, for me, Gravitas was the ability to look at someone honestly and say, yeah, this is going to be hard. It's going to take a lot of years. It's going, it's needed. There's no doubt it's needed. It's the inevitable future. And here are the milestones we expect to hit along the way, but I don't know when we'll hit them. Um, and um, that kind of authenticity, authenticity is well-received by the best investors. It's true that some investors just want to see the hockey stick and move on. But the best investors actually want to know they're working with a real person who will be honest with them. Um, I've been on the investor side as well. And the worst thing is working with someone who you're afraid is lying to you. Because what can you do then? Whether it's healthcare or business or policy, if someone's not telling you the truth, there's nothing that you can do to make it better. That's a lesson learned there. And I know we are running out of time. I feel like we have covered a lot of the lesson learned that you have. And I can have another hours of conversation with you because I think you have so much to share. I, I have not even touched on your experience of uh, being part of a 
company in Asia, because I think that is another interesting subject to talk about how different uh, healthcare in different parts of the world. Uh, but with that, I don't want to take up too much of your time that you promised, I promise you. Uh, with, uh, so thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. And I learned so much from this conversation. Christine, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and speak with your audience. And if I have one final remark, it's um, healthcare needs smart people to do good things. So I'm so glad that you have an institute and an audience of people that want to do that. Um, you know, we're a community trying to make life better for patients. And as long as we keep that in mind, whether we're just starting our careers or we got decades in the trenches, I think we'll still keep going the right direction. Yeah, no, this is great. Well, thank you. Thank you for all your work. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.